Uh, Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, thank you so much uh, for this beautiful day that you've given us to come here, to gather together, to worship you, and to be in your word, and to fellowship with one another in your name. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to work and empower us, empower me, Lord, to preach your word with boldness and with clarity and power. And Lord, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear what it is that you would have to speak to us this morning. We thank you for your word. It is so awesome. We thank you for your grace. It is so awesome. It is so abounding and uh, overwhelming compared to our sin. And so, Lord, help us uh, this morning uh, to see that in this awesome work you did in the life of Paul. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we are in Acts chapter 9. We have come this morning to a very significant uh, portion of the book, but it's not only a significant portion of the book, it's a significant portion in church history, a significant moment in church history. It's a significant moment uh, in history, period. Saul of Tarsus will know him as Paul the Apostle, he will be converted and begin to follow Jesus here. And that, no doubt, is huge for us. I found this in a couple different places I was studying. I wasn't able to find uh, who wrote it. It says, Obliterate from the world the influence of this man's 30 years of ministry, and you sweep all churches across the face of the earth. You quench the moral rights of the age, You give back Ephesus to Diana, Athens to Nineveh, Patmos to Venus, Rome to all the gods of her pantheon, and plunge the entire world once again into pagan darkness and heathen dissoluteness, which is lacking moral restraint. Vessel that God chose to put his riches in to carry his gospel uh, to the Gentiles and to all those places and to change his world. He will also pen for us 13 or 14, depending on whether or not he wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, books of the New Testament. But of course, for all the work that Paul did, only God deserves the glory, as Jesus will knock him off of his high horse here on his way to Damascus, and the Holy Spirit will begin to work in and through him through for the rest of his life until he is beheaded. But Paul is a remarkable, remarkable human being. His conversion then, of course, is so important to us. A conversion that is more important to me than Paul's is my own, as it should be for you. We should all think back and look on the time when Jesus came into our life and invaded it and saved us and redeemed us and put purpose into us. We should all cherish and look back and remember how God came in and rescued us by grace. This testimony, our testimony is also a, you know, a tool in our arsenal of sharing Jesus with people. And Paul's conversion is going to be a model for us in so many aspects of his conversion can be true of our own conversion and every other conversion And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at uh, the first 22 verses in the chapter in the book. And we'll look at three aspects of his testimony. 
three aspects of his testimony are true of him and true of ours as well. The first aspect of Paul's testimony was his life before Jesus. His life before Jesus. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2. Then Saul, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is what Saul was like before Jesus. It says he is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. It's interesting, we know that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, we know that he is a doctor and he uses medical terms when he is, uh, when, you know, in the words that he uses and the word that he is using for breathing threats here in the Greek, in the original language, it is the idea uh, of the panting of a beast. You know, this, this panting of an animal. And before Jesus, Paul was an animal. He was a danger to Christians, saying, it says there he was breathing threats, but not only was he breathing threats, he made good on those threats, and he consented to the death of many Christians, and he imprisoned and killed them, and he's, he's active in going after them. And we read that sometimes, and we're separated from it. We're separated from it by time, and we're separated from it by space. That happened 2,000 years ago, and it happened in Israel and so sometimes we can be distant from what that means. But listen, put yourself in this place. There's a lot of nice and decent people in this church. Good family people. Good business people. Uh, people who care for their husbands and wives. People who are accomplished. People who love the Lord. But in that one thing, that last thing, just because you love Jesus and you associated yourself with him... Paul would look at you and with that one label that you were a disciple of the Lord Jesus, he didn't care what he wanted to do was incarcerate you, imprison you, shut you up, or have you be killed. If you found you dead on the road, they'd probably think, okay, good, one less for me to deal with. This is Saul of Tarsus that we're talking about here. He wouldn't have thought anything to... Take us away from our families, you know. And then you think of why. What was his motive? Notice he goes to the high priest basically asking for a document so he can have authority to rest believers. We'll look at two different portions of scripture where he talks about his life before Jesus. Galatians 1, 11 to 14, Paul tells us this. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither, neither received it from man, nor I was taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and in my nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father fathers and then in philippians 3 5 and 6 he says circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of israel of the tribe of benjamin a hebrew of the hebrews concerning the law a pharisee concerning zeal persecuting the church concerning the righteousness of which is in the law 
blameless. He was a religious man. He believed in the Old Testament, but he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he was on a mission in his zeal for God. It was what he thought he was doing. He thought he was serving God by destroying the church. It's literally what what he thought he was doing here. Was he was serving God by destroying and putting to death and silencing the Christians. He was zealous. He was out of control. He was keeper of the law. He was also very educated. We know that he was a student of Gamaliel. History tells us that Gamaliel says that he couldn't, he didn't have enough books to keep Paul occupied. He was just reading constantly, constantly learning. And so, you know, he's intelligent, he's zealous, he's destroyed the church. And if you had a magic mirror back in those days, and you could say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the least likely to get saved of them all? It would have been Saul. That rhymed. I'm a poet and I didn't even know it. This is all a huge encouragement to me. First of all, because there are loved ones in our lives, of course, that we look at and we think of. And we think they are beyond saving. There's no way. I know that God can save people, but this one person that I love so dearly, I cannot imagine them ever repenting, turning to Jesus. And we have reasons for that, right? Either A, they're completely sinful and they live an outrageous lifestyle and they're too wrapped up in their own intellect. And we know that to follow God, it requires faith. So, But no matter how sinful, no matter how prideful, no matter how intelligent people are set in their ways, Lacking faith, God is able to get a hold of them. God is able to save from the least to the most. It is also very encouraging to me because I think of the way he has changed me and the type of person I was before Jesus. And sure, there is still work to be done and renovating to be done in the person that is Marcus Quintero. And as much as you dislike me now, you probably would have disliked me more back then. So, (laughs) he's not finished. So the first aspect of a testimony, of a story of a life that's been changed by Jesus is life before Jesus. Paul had a crazy, outrageous life before Jesus. The second aspect of his testimony and ours is the awakening. What I'll call the awakening. We'll find that in verses 3 to 5. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. There's a moment in every one of our lives, and it happens here with Paul, where we are awakened and we become aware of God. And not only do we become aware of God, we become aware of sin, and we become aware of God's work in our life even before we're saved. Jesus appears to Paul here physically. He doesn't really do this so often anymore. But by the work of the Holy Spirit and His Word, He is able to reveal the reality of who He is to us today. 
It says that a light shone around him from heaven and he was knocked down to the ground. In Acts chapter 22, by the way, Saul is sharing his testimony there. And in verse 6, he says that this happened at noon. And the noonday sun. You think of that. You think of Israel. You think of the desert. You think of how hot it is there. And you think of how brightly the sun would shine there in the the noonday. And yet that light of the sun is dimmed by the glory of the risen Lord. And it knocks Paul down and it will blind him for three days. And hear what Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, we all come to a point in our life where we realize that our sin, I think we all kind of inherently know that we're wicked. You know, we all know we've done wrong things. I don't think you could go to a person in the world and say, have you ever done anything wrong? And they'd say, no. I think everybody understands that they they do wrong things. But there comes to a point in our life where we realize that our lies, our anger, our hatred, stealing, covetousness, or whatever it is that we do, that it is against people. But not only is it against people, but that we are sinning against God. That we're sinning against the holy God. I remember coming to that realization. Do you? Like that, that day that you're just, oh my goodness, I'm sinning against God. He has this moment here. In Matthew chapter 25, we're given the parable of the sheep and the goats. How Jesus will come in his glory at the end of the age and he will separate all people as a shepherd, as a shepherd will separate sheep and goats. And of the goats, he will say this, verse 41, Then he will say, Those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of these, you did not do for me. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then in contrast to the sheep, of course, when you serve the least of the people, you served me, he will say. Imagine what this is like for Paul, realizing for the first time that he's been persecuting the church, but in persecuting the church, he is persecuting Jesus himself, who testifies uh, that he is alive. You know, people are saying that Jesus is alive, and he just wants to shut them up, and now the risen, alive, very alive Lord Jesus appears to him, and he's blinded, knocked down, and realizing that this Jesus is in front of him. Imagine the shock that would go through his body in that moment. Just, oh. He's got to be terrified. I hope that this would bring a healthy fear in us in how we treat one another, church. When we gossip, when we slander, when we look down on each other, when we're overly critical, when we're jealous or covetous towards one another, That is like a body that is hurting itself. We're hurting him, and we're hurting each other, and we're hurting his body. 
There is a disease that is distinguished by the body fighting against itself. It's called cancer. On the flip side of that, of course, when we serve, the good news is we, we serve him. And in knowing that, we should serve each other wholeheartedly as we are serving Jesus. This is very convicting for me, by the way. You know. Now, this, is awaken, this, this awakening process, not only is there an awakening in his awareness of sin and an awareness that he is sinning against Jesus, but then there is also this awareness that God's work in our life began before we even knew him. It began long before this moment. Jesus says to him, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, we know a shepherd has a stick. It's necessary to redirect the sheep. Sheep are dumb, you know, and so he needs to do the thing with his stick. A goat is not for a sheep. It's for an ox. An ox, as you can imagine, is just this very strong, very set in his ways, not very agile, not changing directions, just kind of set in its own way, heading straight down a path that it wants to go down. A little more complicated to redirect an ox than a sheep even. He says, this man is not a sheep, a lost sheep. He is a stubborn ox that walks in his own way and is going down a path. And I have, and so anyway, to move an ox, they would have this sharp stick. It's like a spear almost, and they would just poke the ox. That's what a goad was. To get them moving, to get them changing directions. And Jesus has been poking at this stubborn ox of a man for some time now. And he says, Paul, it's hard to kick the sharp end of the stick, isn't it? Through the testimony of Stephen, through the unrelenting Christians who won't repent of their faith and uh, in Jesus, he has been he's, has been being convicted. We get from Jesus here the idea that he was after Paul for some time, and he has been being convicted and being poked, and he is ignoring that. So encouragement to you, even though you don't you might not think God is working and moving, He is working. And moving long before we even see any results from that. He's been fighting that. I remember this kind of thing taking place in my own story. There was a point in my life that I promised Miami, where I grew up, had almost become a holy town. Everywhere I was going, people were sharing Jesus with me. Like places they weren't supposed to be sharing Jesus with me. Like the McDonald's drive-thru. Like here's your food, God bless you. Jesus loves you, sort of, like, I'm serious, and, and, you know, and I'm seeing bumper stickers, and I'm seeing, I I remember driving one night up to no good, this lady parked, I I, I still wonder if it was an angel or something, I'm I'm serious, a lady parked right near me, it was Halloween night, we were just up to no good that night, and this lady pulls up to me, and she says, you be safe now, you be safe. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I had this strong feeling like, okay, maybe I should listen to that. Um, songs on the radio, whatever. 
I pray that if anyone is in here who doesn't yet know Jesus, that if he is sending people in your life to tell you about him, and you hear that still small voice in your heart that's telling you to turn to him, I believe that's the Holy Spirit, and I would encourage you to just listen to that voice. Just go, okay, I give, you know. It's the best decision you can ever make. Now, something cool about Paul, too, is that even in his shortcomings and in the way he w- it was, God had a plan and purpose in the way he had wired him and the way he was going to use him. You see, if this was a football game, you know, the team Christians versus team not Christians, you know, uh, this guy is on the other team and he is wreaking havoc on our team, right? He's destroying our team. And no doubt the church is praying to coach Jesus and saying, Jesus, you got to get that guy off the field. You know, you got to get him out of there. And it, this is not a touchdown. This is an interception. He doesn't just say, okay, I'll get him off the field. He says, okay, I'm going to change his jersey. I'm going to clothe him in righteousness and bring him on our team. You know. You see, Paul was a very specific man. He had a certain zeal, a certain education in the Jewish law, a certain, uh, he was out in, in the Greek Hellenistic culture, and he, had a Roman citi- and he had Roman citizenship, and all of this was a part of how God was going to use him. You see, in order for Paul to do what he was going to do, God needed someone that was going to be passionate and fearless. Zealous, crazy. Paul was a little... He was out there, you know. We'll bring him on our team. Make him zealous for, for me. He had to know the scripture from a young age because he was going to have to preach to the Jews and much of his ministry was going to be going out into the synagogues. But not only did he need to know the scripture, the Jewish scriptures, uh, Old Testament, but he also had to be familiar with Greek culture and the Hellenistic culture and, and all of those different gods that they served, and he did. He was, he was very aware of that. And he was going to have to be a Roman citizen because he, he was going to have to travel. He was going to have to be able to be free to travel wherever he needed to go. And God was going to use this man to reach people in high places. And so he needed all of this. And of course, he had all of that in Saul. And so how awesome when there is that awakening after salvation that you look at your life and you go, he was there, 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 he was there. Even in my shortcomings, even in my failings, he is going to turn that around for good and use it for his glory and his kingdom. And he'll do that certainly with Paul. And so the second aspect of a testimony is the awakening, the awareness of our sin being against Jesus and the awareness that he was there the whole time. Poking us. The third aspect of a testimony, and and this is going to be for the rest of the chapter, a life that is changed by Jesus, and this is what I'll call the two-question pursuit. The two-question pursuit. You see, Paul asked two very important questions here, two questions that will mark the rest of his life. And he will, find, he will spend the rest of his life discovering, who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? 
who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? Those are very, two very good questions that we should live by and continue to ask and continue to discover for the rest of our life. Uh, notice one of the questions wasn't, what can you do for me, Lord? He said, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? I think when we ask that, those questions, it should be in that order. Not necessarily in, in sequence, but as it relates to importance. So many of us have unwittingly graduated from the question, who are you, Lord? And we just want to know what he wants us to do. What is, our, what is his plan? Part of what he wants us to do is to know him more. And Paul will spend the rest of his life in pursuit of Jesus, running after him. Not are so important. For the rest of the chapter and the rest of his life from here on out, Paul will press on to discover those two things. Philippians 3, verses 7 to 14, But what things were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is, by God, which is from God by faith, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, and if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. He was on the way to Damascus to arrest Christians. He says, I was arrested. Christ laid hold of me. I was arrested on the road to Damascus. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love that. He says, the excellence of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, pressing on to know Him, laying hold of that which Christ laid hold of Him. He was arrested on noon that day by Jesus. He came to Damascus, again, intent to arrest Jesus' followers. He was arrested by Jesus Himself, and it changed the course of the rest of His life. I just want to know him more. Let's read the, the rest of the chapter, verse 6. And the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now it's interesting that in our quest of finding out what uh, the Lord wants us to do, we always seem to want to know the long-term picture. Lord, what is the plan for my life? And I want you to tell me the next 10 years, you know, five years, whatever, just something more than I know now. That'd be good. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'd like to know the future and how things are going to turn out before I act on a thing and before I pour myself into a thing, right? I'm guilty of this. And so many times the Lord, when he has us to follow him, he asks us to follow him by faith, not by, step, not by sight. Step by step. Trusting him. 
we have to be faithful in what he's given us to do now. What has he given you to do right now? If there are any of you stuck in that rut, wondering, what am I supposed to do next? I want to know. I need some vision. I need some hope for the future. I would ask you, as I have challenged myself, are you being faithful in the place that he has placed you in right now? What you know to do, what he has given you to do now, have you completed it? And you're doing well at it. And are you faithful where you are right now? He says, go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Okay, Lord. Not what's next. Nothing else. He says, okay. I'll go to the city. The rest of the time, he's not wondering what to do next, but he's reverting again to the first question, and that is, who are you, Lord? It says here that he was three days without sight. That was the Lord's choice. And it says that he neither ate nor drank. I think this was his choice. I'm sure he could have gotten someone to grab him some food. I'm convinced that it was his choice to fast, and that in these three days, in darkness, the stallion of a man is tamed and put to rest to think and pray. Lord might have known that with this guy's personality, he might have just gone out, you know, to just go do something. But you're going to sit and you're going to think and you're going to pray here. No doubt he is grinding through all the things he knows, all of the scripture concerning the Messiah from Genesis. Okay, the seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the head. Okay, Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Through Egypt, through the Passover lamb, through the law, through the prophets, Zechariah, you know, looking upon him whom they have pierced. Isaiah 53, all of these scriptures that he knows. And he's going, oh my goodness, this was all fulfilled in Jesus. Now there was a certain man, disciple at Damascus, and you got the... uh, Spoiler by Brad today. There was a certain man, disciple at Damascus, named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. I love how simple that is. I think if I had a vision of the Lord, and he said, Marcus, I don't think it'd be, here I am, Lord, what's up? Of course, the Lord's speaking in a really awesome and unique way here. Uh, They don't have the New Testament, and I don't know, I suppose he's in his sovereignty choosing to appear like this. And so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the city called Straight in Damascus, which by the way, it's still there. There's still the city called Straight, and it runs from gate to gate, end to end, in the city of Damascus. So he says, arise and go to the city called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, For the one called Saul of Tarsus. For, behold, he is praying. I told you he was praying. It's interesting. I'm sure in his Judaism, you know, in his his religion, he had a lot of prayers. They had a lot of prayers to recite. You know, there was prayers to recite when someone passed away at a funeral. There was prayers to recite at every feast. There was prayers to recite in the day and on, on the Sabbath. And so he, he had been reciting and reciting and reciting prayers, I'm sure, all of his life. But now the Lord is saying, Ananias, there is a man, he is praying. Finally, Paul entering into a personal and real relationship with the risen Lord. 
and he's praying and he's getting to know him. And in verse 12, and in a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive sight. So Ananias, I've taken care of my part. And Ananias answered and said, Lord, I have heard many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. God bless Ananias here. He is doing counseling. Sometimes God needs counseling. Sometimes he doesn't have all the information and has lost all his bearings and forgets how much authority Paul had. And so that's, of course, what he created us for, to counsel him. Basically, what Ananias is saying here is, Lord, he's blind. Why would we want to change that? That's like the best news I've heard ever. We've been praying. Coach Jesus, take him out of the game. You know, and he's out of the game. Why in the world would I want to go pray for him to receive his sight? <laughs> you know. Verse 15, go. <laughs> Just go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. Kings and children of Israel. You see, there was those, all those things in Paul that we talked about. The Roman citizenship, the, the zeal, the, the, his, his um, involvement in the Greek and Hellenistic culture. Those things were not something that any of the other apostles had. Peter was not going to be Paul. Peter was Peter and he ministered to the Jews. But God had plans to reach the Gentiles, to reach the world, and he was going to use this man to do it. And so he said, Ananias, I want you to go do that. How hard is that for Ananias? Really, him? He's your chosen vessel? And he says, for I will show him, verse 16, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul will know Jesus, again, the power of his resurrection, which we all love, and the fellowship of his suffering. What a promise. Not sure that you'd read that in an, in an inspirational book these days. I'm going to show you what things you must suffer for my name's sake. If you want to be like Jesus, you want to be used by him, you want him to change your character, you want him to give you perseverance and patience and hope and faith, and you want to step out into obedience and the things that he's called you to do, you have to be ready to endure hardship. Trees are pruned. Gold is purified. Clay is stretched. And that's how gro growth happens. Through the pruning, through the refinement, through the stretching, through the breaking. And this is how intimacy with Jesus happens at times. Of course, I imagine that Jesus in his sufferings, he would only go to, I'm sorry, Paul in his sufferings would only go to his Savior, whom, he, whom could relate to him so well, who suffered himself. And so something Ananias is going to have to come to grip with here is that God is free to choose who he's going to use in the way that he wants to use him. And Ananias, verse 17, went his way and entered the house, laying his hands on him. And, and this is the first words 
that Saul, this is the first word that Saul is going to hear from another Christian, another believer in Christ. Brother. I love that. It says, brother. You're my brother now. Brother, Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he rose, and he was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. So now he's going. Saul, he's received his sight. He's active in his faith. The first chance he gets to get water baptized, to publicly identify with Christ, uh, Christ has died for me, he's risen, he's forgiven me of my sins, I have died to my old life, risen to a new life, I want to identify with him, and I want to do that publicly by doing, by being water baptized, by being immersed in the water, and again, uh, you have that opportunity, if you haven't done that yet, you have that opportunity next Sunday at 5 p.m., and I encourage you to take that step if you haven't yet. There's no reason to wait. There's no reason you shouldn't. If you read through the whole book of Acts, he was generous. He just gave us a couple of verses. If you read the whole book of Acts, there's people getting saved, repenting, and getting baptized all the time. It's just a part of what was taking place there. And so, speak to someone. And after his baptism, he's going to spend time with believers, unashamed and happy to join this new family that he's a part of. I imagine, what, what did that feel like for him? Someone who had sinned so horribly against this people. Because we imagine it's hard for them to forgive him, right? And again, we speak of it, we're a little distant, but it's like he's killed families, friends, relatives. But now he's our brother, and we have him in here, probably unsure. Maybe he's spying on us or something. What's, what's the deal? But also for Paul to receive that grace from them and to realize I am so undeserving to be among these people and to receive forgiveness and love from them and for them to receive me. Um, but there they are, and this is such an important part of the Christian faith. I find it weird. Some people say, I, I want God, but I don't want to go to church. You know, I don't need to go to church. That's strange to me. We need his people, and his people need you. And so no, no doubt part of what he wants to do, not only knowing him, but making him known. Immediately, what did he do? Verse 20, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who, all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on the name of Jerusalem and came here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength, as we should as well, continue to grow in him, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Imagine what that was like for them. It's like, oh yeah, great, Paul's here from Damascus. It's awesome. We're going to have him here preaching. He's going to tell us about how silly the, the ideas of these Christians are, these believers, these people of the way. You know, 
And uh, yet he is up there just saying, no, Jesus is the Messiah. I'm sure sharing his testimony and sharing how Jesus had appeared to him. Trust me, he's alive. Trust me, he's alive. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, in closing, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering as a pattern. That's what we've been going through this morning, the pattern, the aspects, the different parts of a person who's changed by Jesus, to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And so again, you look at the type of man that Saul was, a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, aggressive, angry. As bad as that all was, Jesus saved him. And Jesus holds him up as a trophy, saying, Yes, his sin was great, but my mercy and forgiveness and my work on the cross was even greater. He holds that up as a trophy and as an example to us, a a pattern to to us. I hope that with each other, maybe you feel that way. You have have a hard time with something that someone has done to you. They've hurt you. Understand that your Lord, our Lord Jesus, is willing to put his Holy Spirit into that type of person if they will repent and turn to him. Maybe you feel that way. You're, you're just, you live with your own sin as well. Okay, I've come to church and I believe he's died for me and I'm saved, but I don't know about that whole being used by him and continuing to obtain mercy because I've sinned again. When we do that, basically what we're saying is that our sin is greater than his work on the cross. And that's false. His mercy is so awesome. Him able and so powerful to save a man like Saul and change him for his own glory. It brings me a great deal of encouragement. I think of my story. I think of your story. I pray that we would all look at that and just be reminded of the awesome uh, mercy and grace of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this pattern that you've set before us, this awesome trophy that you hold before us, that you, that you saved Saul. And each of us, a testimony of your glory and how awesome you are, that you've saved each of us. Lord, help us to live in that awesomeness, Lord. Help us to continue to pursue you. I pray that the pursuit would not be over, that we would continue to pursue who you are and what you would have us to do. But more importantly, Lord, that we would see who you are and fall more and more in love and into a deeper and deeper relationship with you, Lord. Thank you that you're so awesome to us. Thank you 
for your grace and your mercy again. It's just incredible that you, uh, you dwell among your people. And so we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.